Welcome back to The Cypher, a series of conversations with creators from the Black diaspora who are leaning into their route to create spaces for all of us. I'm your host, Christabel Nsiabwadi. On today's show, there's a phrase by the legendary author, Toni Morrison, that's often repeated, and it's this. If there's a book you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And that's what our guest today, Nana Ekwa Hammond, has done. She's a writer. Her books include a children's book called Blue, which came out in early 2022. And she has a YA novel called Powder Necklace. In her latest book, she's taken on the role of editor of an anthology of African and diaspora voices. And that book came out in January 2023. That book is called Relations. Her writing career started as a side hustle. And on today's show, we'll learn how she turned that into a creative expression of the immigrant Ghanaian American experience. Keep listening. Welcome to The Cypher. I'm Christabel Nsiabwadi. I am excited to have Nana Ekwa Bruhammond on the show today. Nana, how are you? I am doing great. It is so good to see you uh, <laughs> virtually and be with you. Thank you oh, for yeah. having me. You're absolutely welcome. Before we jump in, I want to give the listeners a bit more about what you've done. I want to, before we get into the hows and the whys of how you're on the show, I want to share a tiny bit more. So we mentioned that you were a freelance copywriter where you articulated brand identities. Do you still do that? I do still do that. <laughs> Amazing. All right. So that is, that is important, right? Because for our listeners, you know, if they were trying to do something creative, like how do you earn that money so that you continue to fuel your, your creative passion? Um, but aside from that fact, storytelling has always been a strong part of Nana's identity. And somewhere along the line, Nana was inspired to tell the stories of her own experiences as a third generation Ghanaian American. And so she did. She has, as I mentioned at the top of the show, a YA fiction novel that I recommend everybody read. It's called Powder Necklace. Um, and you have, and, and Nana has a story in the Accra Noir anthology. And she also has a children's book called Blue which came out in early 2022 to wide acclaim. So Nana, you do that, you did that. And you have a job, a day job. Do you actually get any sleep? Oh my gosh. You know, um, sometimes more than others, but um, you know, we just, every day is a new day, just trying to like figure out the balance of it every single day. How do you, but okay. I mean, you say the balance for every day, which really means there's no balance. And we all know that. There's no balance in life. But what does that look like for you? You are working on other people's ideas and, and bringing that to life. But then you have all of these stories in you as well. Like, do you feel like you're split halfway down the middle? I, so um, I, what I've been able to do, thank God, is I've been able to get to a place where um, I have, um, I'm not as overwhelmed by my freelance work as it used to be. Um, I have a few steady clients that have, you know, thank God, been very reliable. Um, so it's not crazy. I'm not chasing in the way that I used to. Um, so I can manage that work. Um, there have been times though, where I've had to pause, um, that work and say, look, I'm working on a novel. I need six months to just pause it. Um, it was tight, <laughs> you know, financially, but I had to make that decision to be able to just focus, but I can't always do that. And so, um, 
I, I, I just try to use um, what I learned from my time working in an office and just kind of take everything, list everything that I need to do for the day and then do that. And wow. there's some days that are busier than others. Um, and there are some days that, uh, you know, are crazy. And there's some days that are like beautifully, like, <laughs> you know, uh, calm and peaceful. And I just try to get as much as I can done then. The other thing that I try to do is um, I really try to, I mean, of course, I love the luxury when I have it of having like days at a time to work on my own creative projects. But when that's not possible, it really does matter if I can just spend 15 minutes or 10 minutes. And if I'm not, even if I'm not writing, if I'm just thinking about the project, like I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes thinking like, why isn't this working? Mm. You know what I mean? Those, all of that is helpful. All of that is helpful. So that's how I do it day to day. Um, And I've given myself a bedtime. (laughs) Yes. I have given myself a bedtime and it sounds crazy, but, um, and I'm trying to reduce it, but, or, you know, make it earlier, but my bedtime hard stop, no matter what's happening is 2 a.m. So whereas whoa, whoa, before, whoa, 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 whoa. I know I was ready to say nine at nine p.m. and you no, said two. You know what? <laughs> you know what? It it it. it I need to. I, I think I'm going to revise it to like eleven thirty p.m. Uh, because that just makes more sense. But um, you know, I used to be a person that used to love like pulling all nighters. So to have it be two a.m. for me was like okay. <laughs> wow. I don't care what's happening. I don't care how much, you know, you feel inspired. You have to shut down at 2 a.m. And I often go to bed earlier than that, but Mm. that is my hard stuff. Wow. That's amazing. So, um, you know, you have written several books. Um, The first one, I believe, or the first one that was published, I should say, because I'm sure you wrote many books before that, that may not, maybe they weren't published, um, was Powder Necklace. And that's how we first met, because I interviewed you on my first show called Home From Home. Um, and you, you clearly love words. So what inspired you to, um, get out there, pitch the story and, and see if someone would take the story on? I think what inspired me was one, um, just the, the desire to make this my life, to make words, my life, to make writing my life. Um, it was, you know, I just felt like I, I knew that I, I, I wanted to be a writer from very young, but it just never seemed possible because I didn't see, like, I, I didn't know any authors personally, and I just didn't know how that would work. So I was, you know, initially I was like freelancing for like writing for different magazines and just, you know, chasing bylines and seeing what I could get, but I always wanted to write books. And, um, and so I just kind of, I knew I had a story, um, um, that I hadn't read. I'm speaking of the quote that you had written, uh, you had mentioned, um, at the top with about uh, from Toni Morrison. Um, I, I had never read a story of, you know, a girl who lived in, you know, the States or in, you know, the UK and, um, was sent back home to Ghana to go to school. 
And that was happening a lot in, you know, the community that I grew up in, or it was a threat that was, <laughs> oh, was, <yeah. laughs> was wielded often um, by the parents in the Ghanaian community. And so I thought, you know what, I know I have something here and let me just try. And I tried for a long time and one agent bit and one publisher bit. And that was the beginning. And I feel like once you, once you get that bite, you're hooked. You know, you're like, this could happen. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, it's happening. And so it was a long slog in between. I mean, Powder Necklace came out in 2010 and it is now 2023. Uh. And so it took 12 years for my next book to come out. Um, and then, you know, and then this one, um, Relations, which is a year after the children's book came out. So just kind of keeping keeping at it. You said that you, that, you know, you were always, well, I'm paraphrasing you, um, that you always loved words and words were your life and you wanted to make words your life. You know, you come from an immigrant family, so, you know, it's an obvious question, but I have to ask it. What was the reaction when you were like, I'm going to publish a book? Were they like, yeah, sure, go for it? Or were they like, <laughs> you're jesting? <laughs> well, you know, so the thing is, is that... Um, my mom um, was um, sort of like a, you know, a, a hopeful writer. When she was, um, I found when we were cleaning up one day, I found several um, romance novel manuscripts that she had sent to publishers with their letters, um, you know, commenting, giving her feedback. And so I remember, um, you know, I came across them and she said, see, it's, you think that the writing just came from you, it's, you know, <laughs> it it's me, me, that kind of thing. But, you know, but of course them being, or I shouldn't say of course, but um, them being immigrants coming from Ghana, they wanted us all, all of their children to have secure, stable, financially lucrative jobs. And, um, and so they, you know, they really wanted me, they were like, okay, doctor. And then I was like, eh, I'm squeamish with blood. <laughs> so, um, you know, after that didn't work out, they were like, okay, lawyer. <laughs> and, you know, that was, that was the plan until it just, my sister, actually, I give her credit because I will never forget. It was, um, my birthday and she came to visit me in college and she gave me as the gift, a journal and the on the cover of the journal, there was this like wild woman with a ton of cats, crazy hair, books all over the place. And it said book woman on it. And she said, you can do this, you know. And I just attribute that. I mean, I, I just felt like that was my permission. Like I could do this. And so um, so I attributed to her to like why I was committed to finding a way to do it. Something that you talked about, which is postponed joy. Not because of what you're not because of what you discovered about your mum, but ultimately because of the question that I previously asked you about how you need to become a, you know, are you jesting? And you said, well, maybe you could become a doctor or a lawyer. But it was your sister who said, nah, you gotta go for it. And that really to me speaks about that postponed joy where your big sister and my big sister and probably other big big sisters around the world said, Don't postpone it. You gotta go for it. You gotta go for it now, which is a very scary concept for people who 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 come from an a, a diaspora um and a, 
her, you know, are first generation and come from families that have set up home in a, in a place that's unfamiliar to them. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's really critical to not just the African diaspora experience, but to the creator experience, because I think creation is about joy as well. Yeah, that's I, I love I was just sort of, you know, Ming when you were talking about that, because I mean, that's something that I hadn't really thought about before. But yeah, I think that there is um, an expectation um, as a creative person that you're going to have to postpone your joy because, you know, it's not practical. You need to pay the bills, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think, um, you know, with respect to um, my my work, I think that I I did have to still postpone my joy in the sense of I had to... It, it wasn't a, an overnight thing. I still got a job after college. I still worked. I was still miserable in that, you know, in that thing. And I still got a ton of um, rejections um, as I was trying to do the work um, and really didn't have um, many people to ask for, you know, support, advice along the way. I just kind of fumbled along there were a few people but you know overall it was it was all just kind of figuring it out and so in some ways um that felt like postponement but I like what you're saying because I think just going for it itself and just getting having that permission to to do it and not give up on it because my mom did do it she she actually sent it to publishers and you know they they sent feedback back and and that um kind of thing um the fact that I didn't give up was in it, in and of itself a privilege. Um, and that reflects the privilege that I had being my mother's daughter, being my father's daughter, because um, even though, um, you know, they were encouraging me more to, you know, get something that was more stable, um, the fact that I even had the, you know, gumption <laughs> to just keep at it was because they had created um, a zone of space for me where I could do that, where I could stay at home a little longer than like moving out and getting my own place. Or, you know, I could, you know, defy them and still know that, you know, I wasn't like signed, uh, signed away, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Yeah. You know, there's a movement and you talked about that in your book Relations um, in the intro. So when you're dealing with this rejection, what have you found? Are people more or less interested in stories about black people and Africans from the diaspora and the continent itself? I think without a doubt, there is way more interest than there was um, when my book first came out. Um, and even then there was like five years ago or three years ago, um, there is just a, a big push and it's very, um, you know, it, it's, it's very uh, mixed feelings because part of that push is on the back of George Floyd. <laughs> and it makes me, um, it disgusts me. Mm -hmm. Uh, to think that, you know, a man had to be, um, you murdered, know, murdered, murdered, uh, you know, and uh, for, for there to be this waking, this, this awakening. Uh -huh. Um, but I am also very grateful that, um, 
for this the 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 um the ex- the commitment the current commitment uh to really just pay attention and to um open the doors um lift up the gates that have been locked <laughs> to us for so long that that those of us who could get in were had to like shimmy our way through the you know the <laughs> the bars um so i'm really grateful for that and I, now it's operation how do we keep it going so that it's not you know what happened when like the Longman and Heinemann book series, you know, Mm -hmm. the African book series that were published in the seventies and eighties, when they went kaput, it was done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do we keep it? How do we support and, and uh, um, promote, you know, all the incredible publishers and the literary scene shapers that are on the continent that are doing this hard work, those that are in the diaspora that have been doing this hard work, and how do we keep, um, you know, the current commitment that, you know, publishers in the U.S. and in the U.K. Um, have now, um, right now? How do we keep that going? Mm. Now, you came up with the, the concept for relations, um, your book, in, I'm going to call it peak pandemic, but really it was five months in. It was all peak pandemic yeah. back, back then. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and... Uh, you, I'm, I'm just going to, I want to read a little bit from your introduction, right? You say, with this anthology, my goal was to create a meeting place for those of us connected by shared colour or continent, but often separated by country, language, history, experience or outlook. I wanted this collection of works to reflect the intimacy of honest exchange with all of its irony, humour, vulnerability and relief. In it, you will find the work of writers hailing from, based in, or moving in between. And there's a ton of, of countries in which you speak to that. And this is a theme that that um, I often wonder if people understand, excuse me, I often wonder if people understand that, um, what it means to be part of this di- diasporic experience, being part of two worlds but kind of creating one at the same time. And as a writer, I feel you did re- a great job in your, introdu- in, in your introduction, but also just in the book of kind of not just examining that, but also celebrating that. So I'd love to hear from you. Um, yeah, ultimately just tell us what the seed was um, in that pandemic moment when you said this is the idea of, of, of this anthology that I want to produce. Well, um, the seed was just personal. Personally, I was, you know, stuck in my apartment in in Queens, New York. Um, My sister and my brother were in Brooklyn, but in different parts of Brooklyn. And at that time, you know, something that I had done easily and took for granted, which was getting on the subway to see them, was no longer available to me. And it scared me. Mm. And it shook me. And... um, and so I just, it made me, and then not to mention, you know, my, my family in Ghana, um, who I was seeing, it just, my life, I didn't, I, I had always taken a lot of pride in my life being this very international, you know, like I'm on a plane today, I'm here, I'm there, I'm everywhere, I'm on a train, whatever. And um, just, it really, in that moment, in my apartment where I felt like the walls were closing in on me. I just really felt um, really reflective on the power and the necessity of relationships Mm. and the necessity of having connection with people 
Um, so, so that was the seed of the idea. Um, when I thought about um, the things that um, I craved in, um, and I had begun to enjoy in my um, experience as a writer, was this incredible connection with writers from across the continent. I had the, um, you know, the joy of being accepted to the Africa 39 um, uh, list in, in 2014. And I went to Lagos with um, a bunch of us who were included in the Africa 39 anthology. And that was my first time meeting, you know, writers from, you know, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, from Equatorial Guinea, mm. um, from Cote d'Ivoire, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And we were all talking about the fact that, you know, because of the language separation and the, you know, the colonialism that, you know, the different um, colonialisms <laughs> that, um, you know, had us like sort of locked into these Francophone blocks, Anglophone blocks, Lusophone, et cetera, et cetera. We really didn't know what was going on in each other's worlds. Um, and so we talked about like the, the blessing of being together in that space. And so I always wanted, um, you know, we've all, we've kept in touch many of us and a few of those writers are, are actually in this book. Um, but I really wanted to um, replicate that experience um, and, and really just see about who we could um, bring from other parts of the content. The other thing too, is that uh, more recently I've had the immense pleasure um, of attending um, two festivals, um, in uh, one in Ghana and one in Lagos. The Lagos one is called Ake, and the one in uh, Accra is called Peja. And those two bring in writers from all across the continent and in the diaspora. And it is just an incredible time. Because again, we don't always know what's going on, like, you know, just across the border because they speak French or, you know, they speak another language that we don't, you know, we don't know what they're doing. So being together has been such a blessing. And so that's what was on my mind too, because I was like, I can't go to Ake this year. I can't go to, you know, Peja this year, but I could sort of bring that, that feeling um, to myself in this book. Um, and so that, that was, those were the two sort of controlling um, ideas in my head when I um, pitched this. You're listening to The Cypher, the podcast that delves deep into the creative process for the Black diaspora worldwide. I'm your host, Christabel Nsiabwadi, and I'm here with author and editor Nana Ekwabru-Hammond. Keep it locked. So you were really talking about connection and you mentioned that as you were talking about that, you were in need of connection personally, but you also created this connection because you're an international person across borders, examining this global experience that is the, the African diaspora experience in, in the book. 
because that's certainly what we're hearing in that. And that I, I thank you for that because, you know, as someone who's constantly examining what home is, what that looks like and where I fit or if I fit, and I don't torture myself with that anymore. I'm, I'm all things. I'm all the things I am. It's again, you, you created that moment of, oh, I, f I, f I, I feel home and home is just a bit more expansive. You know what I mean? So, so thank you very much for that. Um, I'd love you to read a little bit from the book so the listeners can hear um, from that. Would you be open to doing that? I would love to. Yeah, I'll read a short um, part from the introduction. Um, so here it goes. Um, years ago, I was at a party in New York. I was single, and I presume the man I stood on an invisible island with was unattached to. Separate from the clusters of aspiring photographers and models, and friends like me who had tagged along to this photographer's studio. The two of us huddled together, ripping cups of clever bravado, our heads tilted toward one another at an angle of intrigue and lust. He was witty and worldly, and as we spoke, we discovered we were both from other places. He had moved to the United States from Morocco, and I was the daughter of Ghanaian immigrants who had sent me to live and school in Ghana when I was 12 years old. Oh, how cool, he said. I've never been to Africa. I blinked at my cup and then at him. Sure, I hadn't heard right. But aren't you Moroccan? Yes, he said, the blank stare in his eyes not following my point. But Morocco is in Africa. He appeared genuinely unconvinced. There was a whiteboard in the middle of the studio. I left our island to draw a map of Africa on it and traced out two jagged rectangles. Morocco, I said, pointing to the rectangle in the top left corner. Ghana, I said of the other one. Africa, I concluded. After a slight pause, he nodded with the sincere acquiescence of a knowledge transfer. The spell of flirtation broken, we floated away from each other, absorbed by new conversations, our atoll permanently abandoned. Unsure how or why a man born and raised on the African continent truly seemed to believe he had never been to Africa, I wish I had probed him further, but I was still forming my own sense of who I was, and I had not come to the party to interrogate the vastness of African identity. I never forgot the exchange, though, and years later, when a Frenchman I was dating noted casually that I was from Black Africa, I felt the same befuddlement and irritation at the implication in his racialized delineation of the 48 countries known as Sub-Saharan Africa that cover the Northern, Southern, Eastern, and Western regions of the country, of the continent, excuse me. I told him to never describe them in that way again, especially not in public. As far as I was and am concerned, the distinction between Black Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa and Africa's northernmost nations reflects the continuation of a centuries-old distancing of lighter-skinned peoples from darker-skinned peoples, largely due to the stigma projected onto the enslaved African. Chuki El-Hamel's Black Morocco, A History of Slavery, Race, and Islam, notes how the legacy of ensla the enslavement of Blacks has complicated contemporary racial relations and Black identity in the country. I would add that it has complicated racial relations in every country where people of African descent live. It'll end there. In your books, we, we mentioned them at the top of the show. You've written for children. You've written for young adults. 
you write for adults. So you write for everybody. But the, the thread that goes through that is this is this celebration and examination of of um of the diasporic identity. That's what I think anyway. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But I want to talk about your children's book, which is beautiful, by the way. Blue. Thank you. Um why the color blue? I think I know the answer, but you know, <laughs> for the people in the back, why the color blue? <laughs> You know, I was reading the Bible. I was reading um, about um, King Solomon's temple and the temple furnishings in particular. And it mentioned in one of the descriptions that there was a blue veil or a blue curtain in the temple. And I wondered why that detail was significant to point out that it was the color blue. So I just started casually Googling like, okay, blue temple, you know, whatever. And I came across this really strange tidbit. Too strange to me was that in antiquity there was a snail that um, was harvested for um, a secretion that it produced. That when exposed to the air and the sun, aka oxidation, it turned blue. This this secretion and it was used to to dye uh, textiles and and um, and it was really um, you know, highly valued, this this um, snail dye. And so I was just like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Is this real? Is Google just like giving me false information? So I found, um, I started some proper research and I found um, an incredible book. I actually have it right in front of me and it's called um, The Rarest Blue. Um, it is by um, Baruch and Judy Sturman. And it just goes into much detail about the snail, but also about the history of the color blue. And I was just incredibly blown over and blown away by all of it. And so I had already read a book called Indigo um, by um, a writer called Catherine McKinley. And she had done her Fulbright um, in um, Ghana, uh, where she had been examining the... Um, you know, the significance and the history of indigo, particularly within West Africa. And so I reread her book because I was just like, wait a minute. <laughs> and I just, I was so blown away by everything that I was learning that I said, you know, kids need to know about this because kids are, you know, at that, they're always playing in color, with color. How, to, because learning all of that at once just kind of completely expanded my brain I was everywhere I looked and I was like, that's blue, that's blue, that's blue, why is that blue? You know, and um, I thought to myself, if kids know this, like how might it change the way they see the world, the way they experience the world? Because suddenly it was like the wonder switch was turned on for me. Mm. And I, you know, I was like back into that, that wonder that I had as a child. And it was such a delightful experience. And so I, I wrote a poem and um, I kind of put it away for a second. And then I said, you know what? I really want to see if I can get this published as a children's book. And so that was the beginning of that journey. Wow. But there you go again. You're like, I'm just going to give it a shot. I'm just going to try. Can you tell, where'd you get this gumption? I'm just going to try it. I'm just going to do it. The people need to know. Well, you know what? I feel like I've, I, I'm not thin skinned. I mean, I'm not thick skinned as I, sometimes I think I am. And then I'm like, oh my God, look at what they said about my work. So I don't want to lie and say that I'm thick skinned, but I will say that um, I've, 
I've come to a point, place where I'm like, the worst that can happen is they say no. That's the worst that can happen. Sometimes that um, saying no can feel really bad. Oh my gosh. I know. I, I Like I said, that's why I, I prefaced it by saying like, I do cry. <laughs> I do curl up and, you know, I do have fetal curl um, ex- situations <laughs> um, about, you know, rejections of my work. But um, I, I'm I'm at a place now where I'm like, just put it out there. Just try. If they say no, they say no. And I think possibly because I've been rejected so often, what I began to learn about rejection um, is not necessarily that your work is not good enough, but that the person whom you're appealing to does not have the um, ability or, or capability or capacity to um, to sell your work or to accept your work or promote your work. And so they're actually doing you a favor because they may not be processing in that way. But the reality is like when you're trying to pitch an agent, for example, the agent is only able to sell it to the editors they have relationships with. So when they say no, um, which they've said to many of us black writers, it's because they didn't have an editor that they thought would be receptive to this story about a black person in a black context uh, you know, so so that is what I learned. And so I'm like, you know what, just keep trying. There's always someone. And if everyone says no, oh, well, I have a, a, a poem about the color blue. And I know all this stuff about the color blue. This is really cool. A, do you think that we are in the middle of part of a movement? We're experiencing that. And B, what do people like me and the listeners need to do to make sure that this movement continues? Well, I do think that we are um, we are experiencing a movement. I personally have never seen this many <laughs> um, black writers um, getting published within you know a short period. Of, I mean, every time because you know we uh, many of us are in community with one another. We're on Facebook with one another, and I feel like every time I open my Facebook now, it's like. I'm so pleased to announce I got published. I'm so pleased to announce I got an award. I'm so pleased to announce something. And um, that is really gratifying because I know like certain people have been at it for 20 years, 15 years, 10 years. Um, You know, a few of the writers in this book, when I first um, pitched this, which was in 2020, had no deals, nothing was going on. One of them now has an HBO deal and her book is published. Her book is getting published. It's coming out in, um, I believe, in May. So it's just, I mean, it's head spinning and it's exciting and it's wonderful. But I feel like I'm sure this was the feeling in the 70s and 80s when the Longman um, African Writer Series and the Heinemann African Writer Series are out. And there were, you know, that's how we got, you know, Amataedu and um, Bucci and Machetta and so many other um, writers how do we, you know, how do we keep this going? Mm. I mean, the same thing when we had, um, you know, the, um, you know, the African-American books of the nineties. Oh, yep. I remember those. Yeah. Like that's how I came to, um, you know, uh, really get excited about like just black writers. Like I remember, Terry McMillan and Elin Harris and, you know, Jamaica Kincaid and Jay California Cooper, all of these writers were, and that, that was me coming up reading their work. And I, so 
But then again, that also kind of went away, kind of died down. Mm. So how do we keep it from dying down? <laughs> right. Um, I, I, and that's the question you asked. And I think, well, first of all, someone like you, you've been you've been supporting and promoting this um, with your platform from day one. So I would just want to thank you because I know that that too is a sacrifice for you. It's 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 a, it's a lot of extra work. It's a lot of um, it's a commitment that you've kept up. And so thank you. Thank you for being one of the people that has always gotten it and has been supportive. And I think, um, please continue. Oh no, I love it. It's yes. Yes. I will. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Please continue and please train other people to come and take your place. That's, that's the goal. That's what I'm doing. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And then I think, um, just listeners like support our work, um, you know, read it, engage it, critique it um you know um help us i feel like what has been so um advantageous is over the last um you know 15 years african um literary um you know scene shapers have just gone to town and created the infrastructure themselves they've built we have built the infrastructure ourselves. You know, there are a ton of literary festivals across the continent. And these are people who are sacrificing, you know, running around, chasing sponsorship, doing that hard work. Many of them are writers that maybe don't even write as much because they just, they know the need for something like this. Um, You know, there are bloggers, there are bookstagrammers. There's just a whole network of people that have have been working toiling really behind the scenes so that we're at this the 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 you know western publisher is suddenly publishing us it's it's i want to just make the point that it's not just about that it's about the people who've been doing the work for so much for so long unseen um and seen who have enabled it to get to a place where now our books fall into the lap of this incredible support system that can help us. So, you know, whereas when Powder Necklace came out in 2010, I mean, there were a few people that I could come to and you were amazingly one of them. And now in, you know, 2022 and 2023, you're still here, thank God. <laughs> and there are others who have joined you. So it's not just, you know, um, it's not just sort of like whistling in the wind. You know what I mean? Uh Um, There, there's, there's like a whole network of people that are supportive and helpful and, and and will critique your work and help you make it better. um, That just wasn't there before. Well, thank you for all of that, for, for, for the shout out. And I'm also really glad that you corrected when you said they, then you said we, because I was like, yes, you, you be doing the work. Absolutely. A hundred percent too. Um, we, the, our time is short. So what is next for you? Well, I'm working on a novel and I am also working on a children's book, another one. Mm-hmm. So yes, All right, <laughs> you are, you are busy while also, uh, uh, copywriting and working yes. on other people's things yes. and, and hopefully going to sleep, getting a bit more sleep during the time. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Nana Ekwa Bruhamond, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope that we don't leave it another 10 or 13 years until I interview you again. You again. Um, I don't think we will. I have a feeling 
that uh, that won't be the case at all. Uh, Nana Ekwa Hammond is the editor of Relations and Anthology of African and Diaspora Voices. She is a writer of books for people of all ages and an all-round badass. There you go. Thank you very much for joining me on The Cypher. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Nana Ekwa Bruhammond, who is the editor of the new anthology of African and Diaspora Voices called Relations. She's also the author of the YA fiction novel Powder Necklace and the children's book Blue. Listen to The Cypher wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And please like and subscribe our show. We want as many people as possible to hear about these cultural superheroes. Go to our website, thecypherpod.com, to listen to our show archive, discover how you can access bonus content and creative tips from our pros. And you can also ask me anything about creating podcast content or what it's like to work behind the scenes here. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. We're at the underscore cipher, that's C-I-P-H-E-R underscore pod. You can access all of those links at our show website, which I'll say again, it is thecypherpod.com. Our production team includes Cerise Small, Larissa Witcher, Ty Hughes, and Eugene Kidd. I'm your host, Christabel Nsiabwadi. Thank you so much for listening. The Cypher is a production of My Lens Media, Inc.